Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Man, I've been waiting for this one. I'm going to be a really put Corey and Rodrigo on the hot seat for. for I'm going to be a really bad guest on the podcast and just take over from the start. Excellent. So what's new, dude? Every time you come on, you take over. I know. It's almost like you're a podcast host yourself. Why is your masterclass only for institutions ten billion dollars and less? Well, if you don't understand it, then we can't explain it to you. But (laughs) okay, can you get off the channel now? (laughs) For reals, Rodrigo, why? Come on. So the reason that we target that audience is because a lot of what we do is in the commodity complex, right? And so there is a liquidity constraint with regard to what any institution can do in real size on on commodities. There is uh, CFTC limits uh, for um, asset manager. I mean, AQR has bumped up on on that already and can't offer a lot of commodity-based features that they can on the institutional side. So that's kind of the sweet spot. You're not, we're not going to get an allocation from a $100 billion or whatever pension plan and we, we, because we won't be able to implement it for them. So anybody, you know, we prefer the $10 billion threshold. Like let's, let's, you know, we'll manage your money at $10 billion. But beyond that, it would be difficult to implement. You know, you, you, there's, a, there's a broader answer here, right? Which is that big institutions just don't have the liquidity Sorry, like the, the portfolio agility or the mandate yeah. flexibility to be able to take yeah. advantage of active strategies, right? Like when you get into the the tens of billions and hundreds of billions, you just can't run strategies on timeframes where the high sharp ratios live. So you've got to really just take advantage of 
long-term risk premium, right? So if you look at the Dutch pension plan, a lot of the major sovereign wealth funds, the major uh, state pension plans, large corporate plans, like they just don't run active strategies the way that we um, think about active, right? They think private equity infrastructure, basically long-term risk premium. That reminds me of, uh, and I think I've told told you guys this story, but a a meeting I had once with Norges Bank, which is Norway's sovereign wealth fund, which... By the way, when they set up the meeting, I didn't realize it was Norway's sovereign wealth fund. I, it was for the week after I was supposed to get back from my honeymoon. And these people from Norges Bank email me and say, hey, we're going to be in town. We'd like to meet with you. Uh, to which I was like, well, that seems like a Bank of America. So like, I just said to them, I was like, look, I'm coming back from my honeymoon. I don't have any time to prepare. I sit in the meeting with them. They, they then proceed to tell me they're the sovereign wealth fund of Norway. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> Probably should have prepared for this meeting. Regardless, I was never getting an allocation. It was just sort of a educational introduction. They had read some of the papers I had written. But they were telling me at that point they were starting a real estate investment. And to do it at a fund of their size, they had to hire a hundred people so that they could then scour the entire globe for real estate opportunities because for them to deploy that much capital, that's what it really took. Yeah. So to your point, yeah. you know, yeah. there's just these size limits that are beyond which it's hard to do much other than just beta. I, th- I think it's it's interesting too when I hear um, advisors, allocators, individual investors who are uh, smaller, obviously, and eschew the potential advantages that they have in being smaller um, asset pools to go pursue some super institutional approach where it's $400 billion funds. Like, well, does it make sense to give up the potential portfolio agility you have in smaller pools? And then, you know, some um, mandates have more um, mandate flexibility to some don't depend on a board, right? So you have to maneuver through a board. um, And then if your board has expectations around the return streams, let's say, it's a pension, right? So, so there, the actuarial side of it is there's a capital stack here that I need to assign a long-term risk premium to, and I need to match that against the liabilities that I'm paying out. And so what is the risk premium of your active tactical strategy that I can put to my actuaries? And the answer is there, there really isn't one. And so, or it, it's hard. Well, honest easy. quants will tell you that there's a there's a wide range, and actuaries right. can are, are able to use the empirical history of equity indices and bond indices and claim that those are the expectations. Where they they right. can't do that with active strategies, and so there's yep. constraints, yeah, that make it very challenging. So, so but before we get too much deeper into this, I want to do a couple of uh, <laughs> announcements. Right, one is at four dudes on a Friday talking investment stuff is not advice. This is entertainment, baby. So enjoy the entertainment. And uh, what was the other one? Oh yeah. Make sure you're, you're smashing the like button, sharing the content and all that great stuff. So if you are with us, uh, just give us, give us a thumbs up and, uh, and, and this is meant to be interactive today. So uh, we've got questions that we've collected, uh, which are the top questions for um, the return stacking paper and uh, we'll go through those, but we'll also be looking for participation. If we can, get I want to also ask because uh, you know, Corey, you co-hosted for Ben Efert last week in a backwards baseball cap, and you know, some kind of quasi, uh, you know, like 
sweater and like there was a look that you were going I got, for I got there. A, I got a lot and, of comments on that. And now now you've got the, you know, you're you're buttoned up, you've got the the glasses on, your hair's done. What's the are you going for a different personality? Is, the hair What's is the, not done. You know, it's funny is uh Rod was on a call with me earlier today where I had to send someone a headshot and the woman goes, I don't know if you were on at this point, Rod, but she's like, you don't look anything like the headshot you sent. And I was like, well, this is this is what I call pandemic chic. I'm wearing uh, like a Tommy Bahama shirt. I've grown out a mustache and I've just given up on my hair. So this is my favorite new uh, new move before we go live with Corey. <laughs> the, uh, mustache, gotta, the, uh, the curling up the mustache. Well, I have a problem, which is one side naturally curls up and the other one naturally curls down. This is what happens when you. Oh, curl there's no hair. way you can deal with that asymmetry, dude. That must no, drive no, you no, crazy. That, that yeah, the OCD right. really goes off. So this is this is tantalizing conversation for everyone listening. So thank yes. you. Yeah. No, we got to no warm doubt. them up. Warm exactly. Them up. Um, all right, so we are here today to talk about the new stacking returns paper. Before we get going, let's talk about what motivated. Um, you guys to, to, to think about this theme and why, why would we write this paper? Um, for those listening, this is primarily the brainchild of Rodrigo and Corey. So, um, Mike and I are going to kind of moderate a discussion and put, put Rodrigo and Corey on the spot for a change. Um, so which one of you wants to go first? Like, why did we, why did you guys write this paper? What's it for? Who's it for? What problem are you solving? Yeah, Corey, why don't you start with the kind of the valuation, expensive markets and all that. Yeah, we can start there. So I think uh, just about every major investment firm out there has been forecasting low real returns for a traditional 60-40 portfolio for the better part of at least half a decade. Most major firms since 2015 uh, under the expectation that there's going to be strong reversion in equity valuations, which are historically high right now. And that when you look at fixed income, the gravity is a little stronger that your starting yield to worst is a pretty strong predictor of your forward nominal return. So you subtract out inflation, even if you, you know, sort of discount inflation below what a lot of people think it'll be, uh, you're still talking about real returns for a 60-40 portfolio that are depressed on a historical basis. You sort of contrast that to the experience everyone has had with the 60-40 over the last decade, particularly American investors who we deal with predominantly, who are have that home country bias and invest in the S&P. And it has been, over the last decade, one of the highest realized risk-adjusted returns for the 60-40 portfolio ever, going back at least 100 years. Especially on a risk-adjusted basis, yeah. Yeah. So you have this this unbelievable total return, unbelievable risk-adjusted return, and you contrast that with the expectation that going forward, returns are going to be quite poor. And so we have this struggle, which is everyone is anchored to the wonderful performance of a 60-40, and it is becoming more and more difficult to have conversations with advisors and investors and move them off of that base, while recognizing that staying with that base is driving while looking in the rearview mirror. And so there have been uh, a number of products that have come to market now that are enabling us to do new and interesting things with the portfolio. And I'll let Rodrigo go into that a little bit more. But the question was, how can we sort of bridge the gap, which is people aren't moving off the 60-40, but we need to find ways to introduce 
new sources of return and new sources of diversification, particularly potentially towards things like inflation, without making them very uncomfortable the way that introducing liquid alternatives over the last decade did. And so that's where a lot of this return stacking idea came from. Last thing I'll say is I need to give credit where credit is due. Uh, Rodrigo came up with the phrase return stacking. I think it's brilliant in how easily it explains what we're trying to achieve, uh, both on the pros and the potential risks side. So all credit to him for, for the paper title and the concept. Well, yeah, thanks, Corey. Um, I think the one thing that really drove me to try to find a better solution is this, the fact that when you compare how people perceive the expensiveness of a bond versus equity, they can see a low yield in bonds. And what has happened, it, it is a, it's caused investors and advisors to move up the risk scale, right? Move up to more equities or equities that are bond-like or bonds that are actually high-yielding, you know, low, high-risk uh, assets that ultimately you can see a line item that you might say it's 40% bonds, but when you dig into it, it's really just a different way of getting exposure to equities. And, it's, and the portfolios have gotten highly pro-cyclical, meaning that whatever offset you might have gotten in a bear market or an abrupt market, negative market shock from bonds, it's no longer going to be there, right? So you, you see more and more of these advisors seeing the low yield in bonds, adding to equities to reach for yield, get a higher return and, without them realizing that, you know, it's really putting their clients' futures at risk. So that was, to me, I saw that and said, you know, there's got to be something we can do to add diversification and improve that, help them keep their 40% bonds and stack different types of diversified returns on top. Is there any particular environment that 60-40 is specifically vulnerable to that that we're trying to kind of solve for here? Adam, I like the the volleyball, light, yeah. gentle layout. I'm not I'm used to these soft the softballs, man, but I'm, you know, I'm trying to here. serve you guys up. <laughs> you can also answer that one, Adam. What, what do you think? What do you yeah, think? I mean, you're, you're, you've, you've done enough study on risk parity. You, you, you dive in. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we, everyone knows, right, that um, both stocks and bonds are not structurally um, set up to, to thrive in periods of higher than expected inflation or lower than expected growth, right? Equities, by their nature, are designed to do well during periods of abundant liquidity, benign inflation and better than expected growth. Bonds are designed to do well during periods of below expected um, or, or low uh, low inflation and um, below expectations in terms of growth, right? So you have this completely other side of the macroeconomic picture that we really haven't seen much of in the last 30 years, which is this period of high inflation and where growth continues to come in a little below expectations, which some people call stagflation, where both bonds and equities are kind of designed to suffer. And because of the um, the flight to passive and how well 6040 has done over the last 10, 20, 30 years, um, very few people have felt the need to diversify into investments that are designed to do well during stagflationary environments. And there's a reasonable probability, perhaps higher than um, we've, we've seen in the last 20 or 30 years, that we may be entering into a stagflationary environment now and at a period of 
extremely low expected bond returns and probably extremely low equity returns. And so maybe now more than ever for the, the generations that are currently investing, we should be thinking about how to hedge that inflation risk. And if I can just nope. add one thing really quickly, Mike, before you dive in, yeah. I do want to say like, as much as I might discount that people are just anchoring, or as much as I might sound like I'm just saying people are anchoring to the last 10 years, I do think there are some rational aspects of sticking with the 60-40 in some ways. For example, if we believe that returns going forward are going to be depressed, then two of the most important levers that you have to work with are fees and taxes, right? So when we talk about introducing diversifying alternatives that are often higher fee and less tax efficient, people go, well, I don't really want to sell my productive core financial assets to move into that space. Similarly, introducing something like commodities, well, there isn't really a clear answer as to whether passive commodity exposure, which you can get very cheaply, will give you a risk premium. So if you already have a a low expected return, and then you start selling those productive assets to buy something that might have zero risk premium, even if it's diversifying, now your expected return is that much lower. So I do want to just pause and say, I do not that I think that is a good answer, but I have heard some rational arguments as to why you might not necessarily make some of what seem like obvious asset allocation decisions. Yep. No, right. that's, that's totally fair. I think, I think the other thing that you guys have, have covered, but maybe not explicitly as well, and I want to bring to the forefront here is the idea of diversification and how the efficient frontier changes in the various uh, different economic regimes. Maybe I can just um, show my screen here um, for a second. Because I think this is, we haven't looked at this, uh, this graphic in, in a long time. Is this I think different it's, efficient frontiers? Yeah, over the decades, right? So if we, uh, oh. <laughs> how come it shows my, uh, my screen here instead of, the, you know, okay, there we go. Well, yeah, I mean, just generally speaking. Yeah, challenge, real <laughs> challenge. <we> <laughs> So you, you can see um, in, in these efficient frontiers, you have the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and then the entire period. And uh, the interesting thing is in that period where um, Adam highlights this idea of stagflation, which is the 70s, you can see that green line. The efficient frontier is, in fact, just simply a straight line. And it's a straight line because there is no benefit of diversity in stocks and bonds. And that's really the last decade where that happened. Another interesting one that, that maybe harkens back is the, the red efficient frontier of the 2000s, where it's actually inverted and bonds are the higher risk adjusted return asset and equities are at the lower right. And um, that was a function of excess value. We can, we can drop that, I think, now and come back to... Uh, do I stop Excess there? valuations, you mean coming off the 2000 top? Yeah. And, yeah. and so yeah. when you think about the, the, what you outline, Adam, as being the potential for uh, a little bit more inflationary pressures as we go forward over the next decade and how that has implications for rates and looking at high equity valuations, this is very much like the late 1960s, the nifty 50. And you get into a, a, a period where you have negative real returns for both stocks and bonds, and they're correlated. 
Like the big thing to me is, and they are correlated. Like the two thousands, yep. well, yeah, okay, equities were pretty crummy, but stocks and bonds were not correlated. They were very uncorrelated, and thus, if you held a portfolio of both and rebalanced, you actually fared okay. That's not what happens in the seventies. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know the issue is clear of having those two asset classes. We see the blind spots, but. Those who have seen the blind spots in the last 10 years and done something about it have struggled, right? Have well, they've suffered, suffered they've because of what punished. Corey mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. what, what have you done? You've grabbed the two best performing asset classes, reduced your allocation to them to make space for alternative strategies. Some of them may have, may have been uh, CTAs that have had comparative to their previous 20 years where they were doing you know, high, mid to high double digits. In the last decade, they've done low single digits, right? So if you're dragging down 30% of your portfolio to add to these CTAs or, or managed futures managers that have exposure to commodities because you see the writing on the wall, you've gotten fired over and over again. And that's what one of the things that we address in the paper. You're like, sure hey, picking on managed futures. I mean, the, I, I think yeah, you've got to expand that to basically every... Yeah, liquid um, alternative value manager global equity alternative, global every macro. factor strategy factor every strategy. other jurisdiction um you know every other asset class has, has suffered relative to to u.s equities and treasuries no, and credit so so can i toss out a tangential question because this was something i was pondering and as i wrote my quarterly commentary which was you've had this large expectation for the last half decade even going back to 2013 that markets are overvalued you should see depressed forward returns. And we've almost seen the exact opposite. And in my head, I'm thinking to myself, well, is this sort of the recent research from Koijin and I'm going to butcher his name, but Gabay or Gabax writ large, which is with this, there is no alternative type market we're in that people are moving away from fixed income to buy riskier assets. The positive realized returns is really just been a demand shock that's been realized. And so we're sort of is hitting that escape velocity that people are chasing the returns. There's not, they have to keep investing there because bonds keep getting less attractive. Even though they're selling bonds, bonds aren't getting more attractive because central banks are keeping rates depressed. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this is one of those, like this is just going to continue potentially until the marginal dollar stops having an impact. Well, that's sort of the inelastic market hypothesis. Or exactly. Like precursor to that. Yeah. I mean, there's that's certainly a potential driver of this effect. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was a, a meaningful driver, right? And I think the 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 state transition that we're experiencing, if there is a causal driver that you can point to, for me is the shift from a purely monetary accommodative policy to now a combination of monetary and fiscal, fiscal. policy where you're now it's been a it's it's been financialization which has driven growth exclusively over the past decade and that has benefited a you know increasingly smaller fraction of society and now we're getting to the point where the political pressure is sufficient to and probably catalyzed by some of the experiences during COVID, et cetera, that probably accelerated it. But we've certainly seen a massive fiscal impulse over the last 18 months that we haven't seen in decades. 
we've got all of this talk in Congress and not just in the U.S., but but in a variety of major global jurisdictions that are now contemplating massive, massive fiscal packages. And when you're beginning to take money out of the financial economy and fire hose it into the real economy, now you're going, you have the potential for triggering demand for real assets, real durable goods, real consumption that just hasn't been been there for the last 10 or 12 years. So, so that is really the trigger that I think the market is reacting to as we're seeing market implied signals that the market is concerned about an acceleration in unexpected inflation. Well said, well said. Now, uh, that is, again, it's a good argument. It makes total sense. Now, try to move people off their 60-40 right now, right? Mm-hmm. So this is, kind of goes back to the point. Yes, there is a value there. Yes, it is intelligent. I've been doing this for 10 years, as in reducing my exposure to 60-40, and I've gotten burnt, so I'm going back to 60-40. So back to how do we, how do we get to kind of patch that up? And also give people what they need in that transition period. Because eventually we'll get to the point like we did in the early knots or the mid knots where people underweighted U.S. and overweighted BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China. That's the place to be, right? The U.S. was not the, the area you wanted to be in. Um, so this is a, the paper was an attempt to do a yes and rather than a, there is only one way to diversify. And the yes and was... Um, it was facilitated by these capital efficient ETFs and mutual funds that it came out, um, it, allowing us to really create a stacked uh, approach to to the PNL that we can grab from different asset classes. So we start in the paper once we recognize that advisors have are not benefiting from a lower single digit return of alternatives. What you can do is simple solution was grabbing the Wisdom Tree uh, NTSX is the ticker where they're basically grab the 60-40 portfolio and leave it up 150%, right? So what you're getting when you buy, you give them $100, you are getting $90 of equity and $60 of bonds. And what we showed in the paper was how when you grab NTSX since its inception and only allot it 67 cents on the dollar and compare it against 100 cents on the dollar to the Vanguard balance fund, they are nearly identical. They're basically the same equity line. But the difference to the user of that product is that you have increased 33% of your portfolio real estate that you can do a myriad of things with, right? You can, if you think the markets are overvalued, but you can't not participate because your clients will fire you, you can just keep that in cash until the next COVID crash happens. And then you, can, you have all this dry powder to back up the truck in the, in the asset classes and securities that you think are undervalued. That's one way to stack returns above that, what you would get from simply buying and holding the Vanguard balance fund. Right, Corey, you also uh, went through another approach for, to stacking like with, the, um, with the bonds. Why don't you give everybody an example of that? Yeah, you know, the stacking examples we gave in the paper are by no means prescriptive. They're just meant to be examples. But I think one of the questions that uh, people often think about when they're facing a low return environment is, well, okay, if I if my beta is going to give me a low return, how can I get some alpha? And so the question becomes, uh, are you going to take your 60 and try to find managers that can consistently generate alpha for you over the next 5, 10, 15 years? And the evidence is very thin, particularly in U.S. large cap equities, that 
you can find managers that can consistently do that. So one of the ways in which return stacking can be used is to get your core beta with 66 cents and then use the other 33 cents to allocate towards different risk premia that should realize much more consistently. So for example, you could take those $33 that Rodrigo mentioned that you freed up and put them in very short-term high quality corporate bonds. So maybe they're gonna give you you know, 150 to 200 basis points a year, you get a 33% allocation, you end up with 60 bips. Well, now you get a 60-40 plus another 60 bips of returns on top. And that's coming from an extra 33% exposure to very short-term, very high-quality corporate bonds. That's a pretty attractive proposition because I'm much more certain about that that 33 bit or that 30 bips or 60 bips is going to be added on just about every year over the next 15 years versus me being able to find an active manager that can add some alpha. So, you know, particularly if you find uh, an actively managed bond fund where I think there's more evidence that alpha can be generated, I think you can use this form of return stacking to basically try to pick uh, places where you can add some excess return much more consistently. You're muted, Adam. I want to bring this back to sort of some of the fundamental theory that everyone's familiar with in finance, right? I mean, um, go back to the 1950s, Harry Markowitz, and then Sharp and Trainer. they sort of described an optimal portfolio allocation framework where you allocate to a maximally diversified portfolio or an, an optimal max Sharp portfolio. And then if that portfolio is not expected to deliver the returns you need, then you simply borrow at the risk-free rate and lever the portfolio up to generate that excess return that you require. It's very difficult for retail investors, for most advisors, even for small institutions to borrow using margin, for example, at rates that make that theoretical framework work in practice. What's great about the setup um, as designed by the um, Wisdom Tree ETF, for example, is you're using futures to achieve that leverage on that core portfolio, which means that you're borrowing at a rate that is consistent with what the largest, most liquid, most creditworthy institutions in the world are borrowing at. And you're able to use that borrowing rate to allocate to you know the other 33% of the portfolio. So the hurdle to generate an excess return on that 33% of the portfolio is as low as anyone can conceivably get, right? It's a very, very low hurdle because you're borrowing at such a cheap rate. So almost anything that you layer on there that has a reasonable probability of generating either a risk premium or some sort of alpha is likely to be long-term accretive. I think that that shouldn't be overlooked. Yeah, that financing rate comment is really important, right? Because if we tried to do this, and I opened up like an interactive broker's account and tried to say, okay, I've got my 90% equity and I want to borrow against my 10% collateral to buy treasury futures or whatever it is, or not treasury futures, to buy treasury bonds or or something else, the borrowing rate they're going to give me is not going to be the financing rate that's embedded in treasury futures. They're going to charge me a much more significant premium, which makes that hurdle rate we have to overcome with the returns of whatever we're stacking on top that much higher. So 
you know, a lot of the questions we've gotten is, well, does it matter what you lever up? And the way I look at it from a portfolio construction perspective is operationally, it kind of does sometimes, but for the most part, you're looking at you, you're long a big portfolio and then you're short a financing rate. And your goal should be to get that financing rate as low as possible. So using things like treasury futures uh, are not only potentially more tax efficient than buying treasury bonds, but the embedded financing rate is incredibly low. Yeah. And I will say that what's interesting is if I can share my screen, I'll show you guys the, uh, I think, figure two. Um, the... When we compared the 67 cents on the dollar on 20SX and the 33% in not even cash, I literally just made a zero yielding cash in contrast to the, um, the uh, Vanguard balance fund. All right, I'm sharing right now. You guys see my screen? We could. Now we can. All right, so figure four in the paper shows the Vanguard uh, VBINX um, fund. This is a CC40 fund, right next to sixty-seven cents, sixty-seven dollars to NTSX, and the rest in zero yielding cash, and the performance is identical. And this is because that product uses the cheapest possible leverage you can get on Treasuries. If I had added thirty-three percent, if I had added a cash yield on that, even though it's very low. You're still you're going to be able to bump up your portfolio by that whatever money market fund that you can find, right? So it is it is that cheap. This is not theoretical anymore. This is real life results of being able to apply this structural alpha to a product. I want to make sure we acknowledge Amit's um, Amit Amit. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing. Comment about um, the fact that short term corporates at the moment don't really provide any meaningful bump on um, on cash, right? And obviously this is true. Um, corporate credit spreads are as narrow or almost as narrow as they've ever been. So so this may not be, you know, the most optimal time to layer on with corporate spreads. But I think Corey's point stands, right? Like, yes, it's a narrow spread, but it's a spread, right? And, and the, the point broadly is that you now have 33 cents of, extremely efficiently levered capital to apply to other risk premia or, or active sources of return to stack on top of your core 60, 40 return so that you can have your cake and potentially have a little bit of icing on top. Yeah. yeah. So what, what's been the reaction of folks when you go through that and talk about um, uh, the leverage for their, um, whether it's allocators or individual advisors, how do they respond? Is it is it okay because the um, the the leverage is sort of cloaked, so it's not explicit. It's kind of built into some things, so they feel okay, or they can they can feel good, or they can get it through their compliance departments imparting this bit of leverage. What, what's what's been the pushback on the leverage? We know there's a great leverage aversion generally. So how have those conversations gone? Well, yeah, I think you get the people who are kind of new to this concept. I mean, this is concept as, as old as time, right? But for the retail space, we've never had to have this conversation before because it wasn't available before. So when you, whenever you, this is why language is so important. I think it's helped us quite a bit to be able to talk about 
portfolio, creating portfolio real estate, stacking those returns on top. That's helping quite a bit get people across the line. But I think the first and most and the biggest, you know, kind of um, initial reaction is, well, yeah, I'm stacking returns, but I'm also stacking a bunch of risk, right? You're levering up stuff. Um, I don't, you know, we're in an environment where I want to minimize and reduce risk for my clients. Uh, that's not kosher. That's I don't want to do that. And so we go quite a bit into the fact that we can stack returns while not necessarily stacking risk on top. In fact, if you do it the right way with the right products, you could reduce maximum drawdowns and keep the volatility relatively the same. And that's where selection of your stack is important, right? We could have chosen a wide variety of elements to put into that 33%, but we chose strategies that have and economic and behavioral reasoning for why they're likely to continue to provide diversification, why they and they have a structural non-correlation to bonds and, and stocks. And that's the future space uh, and the CTAs and systematic global macro. Right. So when you when you're able to stack on top something that has low correlation to your uh, tracking or advice portfolio, then you can stack returns while not stacking risk. Right. So once you get them through that, this this idea of things zigging when they're zagging and they're both making money, you start getting them excited. Amit is making me excited. Come on. So, Corey, here's the first good, good um, AMA question. Right. So a certain pirate of finance once said risk can be cannot be destroyed, only transformed. So is that what we're doing here? Back in my face. Is it financial alchemy that you're proposing here or what's going on? No, not at all. Look, I I think uh, when people think about leverage, let's acknowledge that just about every major financial catastrophe has involved leverage in some capacity, right? But it's often very concentrated leverage. So you look at long-term capital management or the credit crisis of 2008. Yes, there was huge amounts of leverage that ultimately were at a cause of the problem there, but it was leverage that was concentrated into a single bet, right? I think when people look at the return stacking, they get nervous about leverage. I like to point out almost everyone uses leverage in their day-to-day life. If you borrowed to go to, to university, great, you were using leverage to invest in your human capital. If you used a mortgage to buy a house, great, you were using leverage to return stack real estate idiosyncratic real estate, but real estate returns on top of your investment portfolio. Almost everyone uses leverage. If you invest in the S&P 500, the average company has like three turns of leverage, right? I mean, and that's what we want them doing. We want them borrowing at low rates to invest in growth opportunities. That's good use of capital. And yet we don't want to do it with our own investment capital. So the way I look at it is I say, I can get a return stacked portfolio we're not necessarily destroying risk. We can't destroy risk. But what we can do is say, if I start with a 60-40 and I introduce some return stacking to say, add managed futures. Well, I think those managed futures are going to reduce the risk of my portfolio in an inflationary environment, but they're going to increase the risk of my portfolio potentially in certain types of endogenous liquidity cascades where you know, there's forced margin calls and everyone has to degross at the same time. You're just changing around where that risk is. But I think the goal ultimately is that in using leverage, you can introduce excess return sources and the added risk that you're adding on top 
is not is is appropriate for the amount of extra return that you're getting, and you're not creating concentrated risk in one particular environment. It's not like we're saying take all that extra real estate and invest in the riskiest stocks you can, right? It's trying to be an orthogonal source of returns, both from a asset class perspective and structurally the type of trades that are being made. So do, do the liquid alternatives markets now offer sufficient options for this dream of orthogonal returns? What, are, what do we observe in some of the products out there now? Yeah, so I think this kind of leads to the other objection when you when we first started talking about this initial example of NTSX being sixty six percent, and then you having the cash. The initial objection is, I don't, uh, I, I can't put sixty six percent of my client's money in that, or my own money in a single issuer, right? Uh, and also, I get thirty three dollars in um, in in extra real estate is that enough to make a massive difference to my portfolio is is i mean warren buffett made all of his money by buying high quality stocks but then levering up 1.6 times right so it's like a 1.6 turn seems quite reasonable is 33 percent enough you know probably okay but you can do better with now the availability of structured products corey's fund is basically 75 percent Equity, 75% bonds with some tail protection. You know, our, the fund that we um, subadvise for Rational is a, you know, the best beta through risk parity. And we, on top of that, we stack systematic global macro. It's another 100% on top. Um, there's Milburn doing the same thing with, uh, with et, et, traditional equities as their beta. You got Blenda, uh, or what's his name? Eric Crittenden also doing the same thing with SPY. So you, all of a sudden especially those using futures because leverage is so cheap in, in that space, you're starting to see these beta plus alpha combinations that then allow you to minimize that objection, which is a line item risk objection, where you can put together seven to 10 different active managers using capital efficient strategies across different uh, types of managed futures and, um, and systematic global macro in a way where you, we were in the paper, we were able to get 1.6 leverage, 60% in alpha and uh, 100% in the 60-40, right? In the traditional balance portfolio. And I, that provided a pretty decent bump. I wanted to make sure that we, we um, spend enough time on the structure of the, the levered beta core to make sure that, that people understand what's going on there. Because I actually had a, a lengthy email exchange with someone I consider to be a highly sophisticated investor who um, ended up not really understanding about under, the mechanics of how NTSX works. Um, mm. For example, he thought that if the equity sleeve declined, then the portfolio would be overly exposed to treasuries and didn't understand that there was going to be some notional rebalancing to keep the, the 90, 60 equity treasury ratio intact along the way. Right. So Corey, I think you've maybe done the most digging on the the underlying mechanics of that. So maybe would you mind just going through what, what's happening in that portfolio? Sure. So NTSX specifically, you can think of it's an ETF, right? And they're going to take 90% of the money invested and invest in the S and P 500. So as an ETF, you get all the wonderful theoretical tax benefits of buying the underlying equities and, and 
in the U.S. at least, the ability to wash out a lot of the taxable turnover that's happening in that passive exposure. And then the remaining 10% is being used to buy a ladder of treasury futures. So 12.5% in two-year, five-year, 10-year, and 20-year. So equal notional amounts. And then the fund is being managed, and I'm going to use air quotes for those who are just listening, I'm going to say actively, uh, to maintain a 5% tolerance band around that 90-60. So when you get drift, so right now, for example, interest rates have been going up, treasury futures have been declining in value every day, some of that cash is being swept out of of the collateral amount, you're going to see a move away from that 90-60, maybe right now it's more like uh, 95-55. And at that point, that's going to trigger a rebalance when it gets there to sell down some equity, buy back some treasuries to get back to a 90-60. And conversely, um, let's say it's it's March 2020. Equities crash and bonds go up. Well, what it's going to do is it's going to start selling bonds to buy equities, right? Uh, because it's, again, drifting away from that 90-60 exposure. So it's just like a 60-40 in the very same way that when those weights get out of whack, it's just going to rebalance. I think um, we get confused by the treasuries, but I think if you just think of this as a 60-40, that's just more, the logic makes a lot of sense. Yeah, 1.5 times the 60-40, right? So so when you allocate two-thirds of your capital to the 90-60, you end up with a full allocation to what is the equivalent effectively of the Vanguard Balance Fund. And it, just like the Vanguard Balance Fund maintains its relative exposures to stocks and bonds, this fund also maintains its relative exposures to stocks and bonds within the bands that you described, right? So um, you're maintaining that 60-40 quality throughout the cycle, which I think yeah. is, is critical. I think the key difference, right, between something like this and the Vanguard Balance Fund is Vanguard Balance Fund is going to buy the total bond market, right? It's not just U.S. Treasuries, and it's not going to be in this notionally equivalent ladder across the yield curve. It's going to have asset-backed securities. It's going to have credit in there. It's going to have agency bonds. So a little bit of a different risk profile. But again, in in the paper, we show $0.66 in in an NTSX replicating portfolio versus uh, the Vanguard Balance Fund, and they are incredibly close. And you're not able to benefit. I mean, the, the benefit of futures too is you get this roll yield, right? Yeah, um, right. Which which is a nice little extra boost. And at the moment, this roll yield is competitive with um, investment grade credits and potentially tax advantage in in the yes. treasury futures versus holding corporates. This is something people don't necessarily know: is that uh, treasury futures are taxed at a sixty percent long term, forty percent short term rate versus most of your return in something like the Barclays aggregate is going to come from your income and uh, the income distributions. And so the actual, there can be tax benefits to implementing your bond exposure with futures. Yeah. So the after-tax expected return is even more competitive with credit spreads. Um, yeah. Um, Pazi is asking how often the NTSX rebalance happens. Is it whenever the drift exceeds the I believe band? it's when it's triggered. Yeah. Yeah. I thought so too. Um, what are so, what are some of the other objections? I know one of the um, big ones, and Corey, you sort of alluded to this earlier, was around the excess fees that mm. you layer on to the portfolio when you um, take two th- or take a third of the capital, as an example, and allocate to 
these alternatives. Um, have you have you found that there are return stacking alternatives that are able to substantially uh, overcome the excess fees? Yeah. Is so the, before is the I, ju- juice worth the squeeze. Yeah. Before I get into like the the nitty gritty practical implications, I think I'll just take a step back and and say. Again, I think this is a very rational conversation to have in a low expected return environment. Fees and taxes are two of the levers we can control that we know have a profound impact, right? a direct impact. So when you talk to someone who's a boglehead, right, that's a two fund or three fund you know, implementer who's getting global market beta in a 60-40 for three or four basis points, it's hard to get them to move off that. What I try to communicate is don't look at the line item, right? Look at the total portfolio composition. And what we're going to give you is the same 60-40, all right? So think of that as your cake. And then the stacking is icing on the cake. And then the question is, are the extra fees we're, that are getting put on for all the stacking, because a lot of these funds are more expensive, is it going to leave you with icing at the end of the day? And as long as it leaves you with some icing, it's worth it, right? And so I think if you... Don't go line item by light item, but again, you think of it from a total portfolio composition. Um, and Adam, you can talk to this. Like, you need to even incorporate some potential rebalancing benefits of return stacking, diversifying sources of return on. Uh, I think what you can find is even if your actual uh, average expense ratio of what you're holding goes up, there can still be substantial excess return that can be generated uh, over the long run. Well, let's remember why people uh, are so conscious of the fee, right? You get a lot of these con- uh, these studies that show, you know, what happens when you pay your advisor 1%, if you get to keep that 1%, what your terminal wealth looks like, look like, right? It's not a little bit, it's a massive improvement to reduce your fee from whatever you're paying from 1% to zero if you just do your Vanguard funds, right? Logical argument makes total sense. What happens if we grab that 60-40 portfolio? and stack 1% return after all the fees, the poor management. You know, if, if that portion that you stacked on top has mid-single digits, right? After fees, after poor management, let's say, just or like a bad decade like we've seen in the last year, that portion, as long as it's above 1%, like any basis point above your 60-40 is going to have a massive impact to your terminal wealth, right? So you don't, this is the beautiful thing about this whole thing, that when you need to make room for your, in your portfolio without leverage to add a non-correlated single digit strategy, yeah, you're taken away from the future of your clients. When you are able to keep that and stack whatever it is, it's a huge one. Doesn't it, all of a sudden something that's single digit and kind of shitty ends up being an amazing addition, right? So I think that, you know, we go through the paper, is it stacking uh, uh, returns or is it stacking fees? Yes, everything's going to be higher fee, but ultimately you're getting a completely different asset class, much more sophisticated. You're getting access to leverage at the cheapest levels you can, professionally managed leverage, and you're getting the rebalancing premium that you get from having all these managers doing, doing, this, doing this internally. Can I give a quick practical example of that, of mm-hmm. your... Right. So Managed Futures, which we talked about, said it had a really bad decade. Since uh, 2011, the Credit Suisse Managed Futures strategy, which is sort of a pretty generic beta exposure, 
had an annualized return of 3.3% with a number of years that it was down, right? But still, the, the net return was 3.3% after fees. So if you put you know, 60% of that on top of your 60-40 because you did return stacking, yes, maybe managed futures was disappointing if you had to sell equities to buy managed futures or sell bonds to buy managed futures. But when you talk about adding it on top as a diversifying source of return, suddenly that becomes very attractive, even though it had a decade of very middling returns. Mike, you were going to say something, I think. Well, I just I was going to say that that the Corey explaining that if the Fred or I think it's Fred Ornberg, um, I think that is partially answering that question, right? If if you're levered anyway, nobody be scared, or you know, are the risks that you're adding multiplicative? Um, and they're not. That's the whole point, right? That as you add these, you have a hundred percent exposure to the sixty forty. It only costs you sixty seven dollars. So whatever you put in the basket of the 33, if it has a positive return, it is additive. And then you've got the diversity, right? And most of the the funds that you've talked about in the paper and the or the strategy types you've talked about in the paper are structurally non-correlated to the 60-40. So this is where, you know, um, you can actually destroy risk in a portfolio where you're adding streams of returns that are not correlated, structurally not correlated to the main basket. You do, in fact, increase risk adjusted returns over the very long term while yeah. preserving all of the, 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 the yeah. returns from the 60 40. I, I think that's. Yeah, I think that that objection, um, you, you covered the objection broadly, but there's still always the real fear of everything correlating to one at the wrong time, right? So mm-hmm. there is something to be said about being levered and everything just is completely offside at a time where there's a liquidity crunch, right? So I think that's something you do need to address. They're generally momentary, like we saw it, in, we thought, saw it I think, in the last three days of the drawdown in 2020. We saw it momentarily in 2008 as well. And so, yeah, you need to consider that. And the way we considered it is by when we were sourcing the different funds that, that went into the stacked return kind of index, um, we sourced those that had a little bit of tail protection to really fill that gap, that, that need that you, you can go long volatility or you know, long convexity when things all go awry at the same time. So it's, it's interesting because when we did, we back-tested this portfolio using indices, right? We grabbed uh, 60% of it was SPY, 40% was AG, 30% was the SOCGEN um, CTA index, and 30% was uh, Goldman Sachs uh, macro factor index, right? We, we didn't model in the tail protection. Um, and yet, from 2000 to today, or to when, whenever we finished the, uh, the report, the drawdowns were either better or slightly worse. It was, I think, slightly worse in 2020 without having modeled in the tail protection that a lot of these um, uh, funds that, that we put in, in the paper have, right? So you can imagine that adding that little extra juice there would help protect even further. So it's not a necessary thing, but it is useful, I think. 
I think the, the other side of it, Rod, is just to flip the question back and say, okay, well, what's the course of action? Is it just 100% 60-40? Is that the solution? Right. And then we come back to the very beginning of the conversation for all those reasons we talked about initially starting yields, starting valuations of all cash flowing assets being expensive. So you're going to have to take some kind of risk. What is it that you would prefer to take and how are you going to approach that? So Mike, if I can add a comment, because you saying you can destroy risk really made my skin crawl, which is fine. I know, I know. (laughs) I I think I think I almost like jumped across the screen. I wanted to trigger you. Yeah. So, so I think what, like mathematically, not to, you know, it's always tough to talk mathematics, but one of the things we can do is we can plot on like an X axis, the amount of leverage we're using. And on the Y axis, we could plot the compounding and utilized growth rate of an asset when we apply that much leverage. So let's keep it really simple and say, we're just buying stocks, you know, at a hundred percent leverage, AKA one for one exposure, you're going to get some compound annualized growth rate. And then it, what if you do it at 1.2 times leverage? Well, maybe your growth rate goes up a little bit. 1.4 times, maybe it goes up a little more. But if you do 1.6 times, what you might actually find is your growth rate goes down. What you actually tend to find is it sort of looks like this curve. And the more diversified the portfolio is, the more leverage you can get before you fall over the tip of that curve. Now, the goal would be uh, estimating that curve requires a lot of assumptions. And so if we want to reduce model risk, we don't want to pinpoint the top of that curve. We want to probably be safely falling to the left side, taking too little leverage. So when we talk about a return stack portfolio, that's 60% equities, 40% bonds, 30% global macro, 30% CTA. What we're really talking about is an unlevered portfolio. That's like 37% equity, 25% bonds, about 19% CTA and 19% global macro, pretty well diversified portfolio. And then we're levering that up. So the the sort of technical approach we would want to take is let's build that portfolio and then plot this graph and say, where is that peak? And we can use it doing historical numbers, or we can try to forecast in certain ways, but where is that peak where that's the optimal leverage point if we know the future? And are we safely to the left of that while still being above a hundred? And, um, at least the, the way I work out the numbers, 1.6 times levered on this well-diversified portfolio still puts you safely to the left of, of maximum notional leverage. I mean, you look at a sharp parity portfolio, excuse me, not sharp parity. Uh, you look at a risk parity portfolio, as you guys know all too well, that leverage point can be, I don't know, 300% notional because it's oh, yeah. so well Three. internally. Much more than yeah, that. At least it starts. Well, it depends on the target volume. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, no, but you're, you're, the point is your way, your margin of safety is extremely large at 1.6 times leverage based on that uh, portfolio construction, right? The right. optimal peak on that portfolio is probably in the neighborhood of three to four times. And if you were to use the empirical Max Kelly is probably well north of that, right? right. But right. So, so this is an extremely prudent level of leverage uh, contingent on the amount of structural diversity in the portfolio. So, so I also and want to come back to a question that, that um, was asked earlier that I think we've now evolved to, which is, what ideas do you have for this if you already understand structural diversification and don't really care about tracking error? So yeah. how, because we just started this risk parity conversation. So 
How would you guys think about that if tracking error is a much smaller uh, behavioral bias? Well, hold on. We haven't even talked about tracking error really, actually. Sure. So so let's talk about tracking error, like the importance of tracking error, why you decided to structure the paper this way rather than going in sort of a risk parity core direction. And then talk about for those who are less, who claim to be less tracking error sensitive, um, you know, what are some alternatives? I think, I think that's Ray Dalio's pseudonym, by the way. So I think. It was- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, when, when we first started talking about this, certainly my gut instinct was to stack returns by first creating the max sharp portfolio. So for every unit of risk that you can, uh, that every unit of risk you take, you maximize the unit of return and then lever that up, right? But this has been our journey. Nobody likes, a lot of, few people like to listen to that, right? This whole thing started because an advisor asked me, I'm trying to create a retail version of like the, the, the all weather, the cockroach portfolio, the, the dragon portfolio. Can you help me? And I said, no, look, look what happens when I grab your equities, your bonds, your gold, your tail, you get well, a hold on, high hold on. sharp The set. answer yeah. is yes, I can help you with that. Yeah. But no, you don't actually want it. You think right. you do, but actually you don't. And I showed him, I said, look, you, let me do it. I did it on the screen for him and I did the back test for him. And what he saw was a high sharp, uh, pretty steady equity line at a volatility of four with a return of four. That's like you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. It's just never going to happen. So I went to bed and he kind of just gave up. And I woke up the next day and I'm like, hold on a second, with Corey's fund, with our fund, with Wisdom Tree, maybe we can create a leave it version um, that hits because the paper, like the Dragon portfolio has a volatility of 15% in the back test, right? You need to lever that up pretty nicely. Why 15%? Well, because that's what equities run at, right? So by being able to use leverage with these products, I was able to go back to them and say, look, here's your Dragon portfolio using leverage that hits like 8 9% volatility, which is probably... A, okay, you're still going to struggle with a lot of tracking, everybody, okay. And we started thinking about publishing this paper, and I realized this individual, this advisor, is unique. Very, very few conversations happen with, when somebody's seen the light. Almost every conversation is about how do I minimize my tracking error while also recognizing I need diversification. I want something that goes up one-to-one with S&P but doesn't have any drawdowns. Can you help me? Right. And um, and so the stack and returns paper, I, we could have gone both ways, but it made sense to us to address the biggest market to try to help the people that are most susceptible to this uh, to this uh, future possible negative um, path for equities and bonds. And it made sense to, to do this, to, to create something that minimizes the tracking. Error. People ask us if that's what we do with our money. No, we're converts. Right. This Mike, is- how does. How does this levered 60-40 allocation make you feel? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well, uh, yeah, it makes my skin crawl a little bit, much like, uh, like uh, Corey's destroying, he's saying destroying risk. Um, and I don't mean that in a, in a, in a I mean that for me personally. Um, I just think that we are reaching a point of peak 60-40, especially when it comes to North American markets. And I've just been around for a couple of decades, a few decades doing this. And I've just seen the markets, how they sort of lull everybody into a concept until, you know, the last dollar of that concept goes in. And, you know, there's, there's you know, a decade long period where things don't work 
like was expected. So if we think about the 2000 peak that started with the 1982 bull market, which started with interest rates at 18%, brought that down to 6% and how the, the conversion happened for people owning bonds and then getting convinced on stocks, the Japanese experience into 89. Like I've just seen it so many times. And when you get such broad, vehement adoption, that equity risk premia, especially that of North America and the US is clockwork. It works like a bond. It works like a CD or a GIC. When you get that kind of confidence, that's where you know I get really uncomfortable. At the same time, I totally understand how advisors, allocators, board members are, you know, compelled to dance whilst the music plays. Very few can stand against the the zeitgeist. Um, And so I think that was the birth of this, the the, the light bulb that went over, you know, Rod and Corey's head. Go ahead. No, I I love that idea because one of the things that, after you write a paper like this, I always find you get to talk to a lot of interesting people and you get feedback. And, and Mike, your point there that people can't stand against this. One of the ways I've been thinking about advisors in the 60-40 portfolio is you can almost think of the 60-40 portfolio is, is the advisor's liability. Right. If they don't deliver returns in line with the 60-40 portfolio, if they deviate too far negatively, they get fired, Right. And so to me, another way of rethinking this return stacking is, look, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to hedge your liability. You as an advisor have a liability that if you don't return 60-40, you're in trouble. We're going to hedge your liability as as capital efficiently as possible. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to add something on top. And it's very Mm -hmm. much like a pension in that sense. It's just I'm looking at the advisor's business. Now, again, we're using 60-40 as the example here. Does it have to be a 60-40? No, you can do this in other ways. The reality is from a dollar basis, the vast majority of money that advisors have for the for the clients they have ends up in a 60-40 balanced portfolio. So it's just sort of the biggest target market for us to address with this example. But to me, the point was the advisor has a liability in this mm-hmm. return stream, hedge the liability, add whatever yeah. else you want. On I like that so, framework. So I, I remember talking to uh, Justin Castelli about this topic, right? Your, your client, if you're an advisor has a behavioral tracking bias. We're, you know, talking to the largest market with the 60-40. But if you happen to live in San Francisco, that tracking error bias is going to be to a different um, uh, main uh, piece of finance, whatever it is. If you're in a city where everybody owns the company's stock, I mean, you're, you're, in, you're in an Apple complex, you're at the Googleplex that's going to be the tracking error that you're going to have to deal with. So I think it's it, it, this expands this concept expands far beyond 6040. If you're dealing with an individual who has a large single stock position, how might you diversify that large single stock position? In fact, we have a few clients in that very spot where they have a large stock position with an extremely large tax liability that they don't ever want to sell. So how might you use the excess margin available on those assets in order to stack returns and diversify the returns if you're never going to sell the asset. So this is much more broadly applicable. And one of the things that an advisor, um, an allocator board member is tasked with doing is understanding what the tracking error sensitivity is to the end investor that they're dealing with. That's the first prescription or the first um, 
uh, thing that has to be determined by that individual? And then how do you go about uh, bringing them to a more uh, responsible place, if you will, that tracks their their, their main... um, index but provides excess returns anyway, go ahead. it was the you know the, the idea that our whole careers has been about we're smarter than you the math is very clear this is the way to manage money for a hundred years and there is no other way look at how intelligent i am why aren't you doing this but the truth is that we were dumb because we didn't take into account the utility curve of the individual investor which has a behavioral bias all types of behavioral bias and when you take into account, you got your mathematically optimal positioning here, and then you have your behavioral need for belonging in a society where everybody's winning and losing at the same time, you need to put those two together, right? Our job, it's presumptuous for us to think that everybody should do this one thing. Our job as stewards of wealth is to put together a portfolio where the end client is most likely to stick to long term, period, full stop, right? Mm-hmm. It's because it, you can provide a Max Kelly um, uh, type of investment strategy that helps you compound wealth at the highest rate, but nobody's going to stick to that, right? So why does it matter? Why are we even talking about it? And I think that this is a recognition of that a recognition that there is um, a, a need for this and our jobs is to help people do the best that they can with what they have, right? Okay, so we started, Mike actually started this and I, I, I sort of backed it up a little bit, but he started by saying, for those who can tolerate a larger tracking error and are pursuing a more absolute return type um, wealth trajectory, how might they begin to think about this problem from a from a beta and um, you know portable alpha type framework? Well, again, I think we cover a lot of this, but there's a, there's a bunch of different ways. I think Meb Faber talked about he did a horse race between you know the permanent portfolio, risk parity, Muhammad Alarian. You know, I'm sure you can add more things. I mean, certainly the way we like to approach it, which is a, a bit of risk parity, a, a portion of long, short, you know, commodities, systematic global macro, some tail protection is an all weather approach to maximizing your sharp ratio. Right. So there's no there doesn't seem to be one answer to all of this, really. But let's say that you source an allocation, um, an asset class allocation from the dragon portfolio, from the cockroach portfolio from risk parity from, you know, Elarian. You mix them together and you find whatever that optimal all-weather ensemble of all-weather strategies are. Well, now you can lever that up, right? And so what we're working on is trying to put together a, a some sort of widget, hopefully soon, that has what we believe to be the underlying exposures across many different public funds where you can type in, this is the allocation I want, and this is the leverage I want, and it spits out how to put together these public ETFs and mutual funds to give you the exposures that you want at different levels of leverage, right? So I think from my perspective, a thoughtful approach would be that, like source uh, strategies where people are calling them all weather, see if you like them, put them together, find the allocation, and then 
you know, at this point, the widget isn't up and running, but certainly you can reach out to us and we can help you structure that using these public funds in a way that, uh, that is useful to, you, to you, whether you're an individual investor or an advisor. Corey, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, just I would say the tough part today is still that there's not a plethora of funds that do this. And because leverage was historically a four letter word and probably still is. Uh, they don't advertise that they do this return stacking. So coming up with a list of funds that actually do the return stacking, I think, Rodrigo, you and I put together maybe a list of 20 total. That said, the SEC rules changed as of last November, last October, as to how much notional leverage can be used in a 40-act fund. Uh, it's now based on value at risk. So just as an example, it used to be if I wanted to take two-year U.S. Treasury futures and lever them up 10 times and put it in an ETF, I couldn't do that, even though that was probably the equivalent duration risk of me just taking that ETF and buying 20-year U.S. Treasuries, which was allowed. So now the SEC has changed their tune, and it's not about notional leverage. It's about your value at risk. And so my expectation would be there's going to be a lot more funds that are incorporating derivatives, providing you a lot more bang for your buck. I think you'll see different currency strategies coming to market a lot more in the treasury future space, commodity futures, hopefully, because a lot of these strategies that could be done in hedge funds really got neutered when they were put in 40 act vehicles. Doesn't answer your question as to what should people do if they want, you know, more tracking error. I'll gladly admit as a U.S. investor, it is hard for me to fight that U.S. country bias. I have not become a full convert to something like risk parity. But what I've done with a lot of my money, um, I just have a lot of U.S. equities that have a low cost basis. I really can't sell them. They're in taxable accounts. I'm sort of stuck with them for the long run. A lot of what I've been working towards is with marginal new money, trying to implement this return stacking via treasury futures and then using the freed up capital to buy things like managed futures uh, and strategies or, or private funds that I might have access to that I think give me a really good diversifying source of return. I think it, I think you, you actually have to ask the question sort of above the um, what do I do if I'm okay with tracking error? Well, the, the question really is what do you believe about markets, asset classes, their returns and the risk, right? So if you embark on different types of strategies, like a risk parity strategy is saying that the return of the asset is directly related to the risk or the volatility that it has. And, and that is the underlying basic assumption. And then you can go through minimum variance has a different set of assumptions. You can go through things like, well, how, how good do you think your forecasting is on various asset classes as you assim assemble the portfolio? And I think probably, Adam, you can wax and wane on this a little bit more, but you know, the, 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 um, uh, what's the paper that you wrote that really goes through that in detail about, you know, yeah, the portfolio got, optimization machine. Yeah, right, right. But which is, if you if you haven't read that, that would help answer that question. I don't care about tracking error. Okay, that's fine. What do you believe about markets? And then going through the portfolio optimization machine, there's a, there's a framework there where you go step by step and you make decisions. Do I believe this or do I believe that? And you go through a decision tree, and then lo and behold, you will have a decision where now your beliefs are congruent with what you're reflecting into your portfolio. And that should be the base of beta on which you would stack returns. If I were to think about a framework to, to put that through. Yeah. Can, I, can I add just one thing to that, which I would say, I don't think it's enough discussion. 
is human capital is an asset. And most people can model their human capital as some sort of bond, corporate bond. And you can decide whether how sensitive it is to default and that sort of stuff. But the reality is a lot of us are like, if you don't work in financial markets in particular, very long a corporate bond that should be taken into account in all of this discussion, right? When you're thinking about your investments and, and the liabilities you're trying to meet in the future, it should not just be about your investment capital. It should be about the combination of your human capital, which is yep. likely modeled as a bond, plus your investment capital. And if you can keep that holistic framework in mind, right, you can probably get rid of a lot of bonds if you're young out of your investment portfolio because you have this huge long duration bond that is your human capital. And then again, a lot of the reason you see bonds come into the portfolio for someone who's approaching retirement is because their human capital duration sort of goes away and turns into an option of sorts, right? They have the option to go back to work. So I think for those who can maybe think a little bit more holistically about their financial planning, which is probably anyone listening to this podcast, especially if you got to it an hour and 15 minutes in, right? I would urge you to consider how that human capital element plays into it as well. I think, I think that's in the CFA, right? Are you a stock or are you a bond? Is that, that's the same sort of framework you're talking about, right? Or I'm writing put options personally. <laughs> <laughs> we all are, brother. Yeah. Along the straddle, baby. I, you know, I think the, um, the next paper we're going to write on return stacking is going to be an all-weather, like return stacking all-weather edition. So that we'll be able to flesh out some of those ideas and how to think about that problem, how to put something like that together. But, you know, for me, this is um, it is an interesting discussion as to why one might want to even even with that human capital discussion, Corey. I mean, it's just another type of bond, right? Um, There are many types of bonds. It's not just treasuries that we can do well with. There's German bonds, UK gilts. There's other. You can get diversification. Diversification is good, right? If we're trying to create an all-weather portfolio, a Max Sharp portfolio, or something like that, with the use of leverage, then it solves a lot of problems. And even if you're young, you just need to be willing to take on as much leverage and volatility as you can stomach and be responsible with, right? In, in that all-weather strategy. One of the things that uh, that continuing to add bonds does, if you're levered up, people, people talk about how it's, you know, bonds are yielding 1.5%, what's the point? Well, bonds are yielding 1.5% if you invest 100 cents on the dollar. But if you're able to lever them up three times, then all of a sudden that 1.5% um, return levered three times rivals that risk premium of equities, right? So if you put them in the right proportion with some commodities, and you are a young person, you have your bond as an individual that's idiosyncratic added to that, and you use leverage, you're, that's actually, for me, a better option than what is commonly uh, told to do, which is the 100% equity portfolio. Like, think of the like yellowing shit coins. Oh, shit hey, coins, exactly. Whoa, NFTs, whoa, whoa, baby. Hey. A little close to <laughs> but, home, eh? <laughs> shit coins just from yesterday, dude. NFTs. <laughs> you know that concentration risk. You can be, you can, you can invest like an old person with as long as you have leverage, because then you'll be like a, an old, yeah. very diversified portfolio with a lot of volatility and, and risk and return, right? So when you think about the Vanguard or whatever any life cycle fund that starts with 100% equities and ends with 100% bonds, and what when if you're looking at the Sharpe ratio of that portfolio, it starts very low because it's in a you know, equities 
historical sharp ratio is 0.3 then as you add more bonds to it the sharp ratio starts going up to 0.5 and as you get older and start to decumulate the sharp ratio goes back down to 0.3 it's an absurd way of managing life cycles the, and there's also a sequence of return risk from that portfolio, right? If you look at the 60-40 portfolio over the last 100 years, there's many decades where you're annualizing at zero in real returns, right? The best way to do it is to have that all weather and when you and keep that same allocation but start at 20 vol risk parity. And when you're retired, start at risk, finish up at non-levered risk parity and maintain your sharp ratio as consistent as you possibly can. That's the next Corey. business we should launch. Corey, Rick Haynes asked, have you I tried the 200 question. SMA approach? Don't ask me this. <laughs> Can we, before we jump onto that one, before we, we jump onto that one, I, I, I think I just want to wrap up on, on the all weather side. So Adam, when you asked me, what do I think about, you know, return stacking, it really is a relationship to the, the concentration in the, in the S&P uh, US sort of balanced portfolio that makes me... Um, my skin crawl. If it was based on a on a on an all weather type portfolio, structurally diversified, you know, pick what assumptions you want. I feel a lot. I would feel a lot better. That would be my preference, and that's what we run in our products. I also think people, investors, allocators, etc., should be thinking about the fact that we have a debasing of the monetary system that's going on, while at the same time rates are pinned at all time low levels. And if you are an investor that is in that world, how might you take advantage of that for your own investing purposes? Let's not even think about tracking or how would I maximize return? I'm a, I'm a return seeking maniac. Well, I would borrow all the money I could at these insanely low uh, the cost. I would try and get as much non-recourse leverage as I could. And then I would try and construct a very diversified portfolio. And so you're, You've got this set of circumstances that is laid at your feet because central banks have done some things and stuff. And But you do have to think about the regime shifts that come through those periods of time where we've seen, you know, pinned rates, debasements of currencies in the past. They have occurred in the past. They're, there are very different asset regimes. But what you're saying with all weather is I'm not sure how that's going to manifest and when it's going to transition. And then when you're stacking on top, you're adding all those um, other types of asset classes that aren't so commonly held, other types of strategies, and you're doing it at almost free in cost. Mm-hmm. Like when rates are much higher, it's if rates are 10%, it's a little harder to do. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So, so about that 200 SMA. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Rick. The, 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 gonna, what's happening here is I that we've written. I won't do that to Corey. Corey has written a ton on <laughs> uh, on the um, timing luck issue of uh, of any sort of rebalancing, any sort of trigger points like 200 days. What's so special about the 200 day? What about the 100 day, the 150 day, the 300 day? Uh, well, go it's a good change. It's a good thing to talk about the Romo, when, Corey the Romo index. Yeah, the Roman. How, the how did Romo we approach index. it? So we, uh, Corey, Newfound and Resolve co-created an index uh, based on um, uh, research that we came to at the same time with regard to uh, maximizing the different types of trend signals that you can get because no one can really foresee which one's going to be better in the next period. You want to have them all. And you want to minimize your timing luck. You want to maximize diversification of strategies. 
and uh, and that creates a much more robust portfolio where you're not susceptible to any particular type of market. So you want to you want to be broadly correct about your signals rather than specifically wrong. And I think Corey has some examples in in, in his back pocket on where the 200-day or the 10-month uh, uh, momentum signal go is specifically wrong um, and, and why you want to diversify away from that. So you can look it up, timing luck, ro- the ROMO or the robust momentum index that we run all the research is there in Corey's website. Thank you for saving me from doing that. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll you know, we're coming up to the, the top uh, of the hour. There was a good do- question here, though, that I, I think should be addressed. Sure. From um, I don't know if I can select it, but from Mike Coldwell's, who was asking if there's any due diligence considerations when looking at these publicly available funds. I, I think that's a great question, uh, whether you're an yep. advisor or an individual. So, Rod, I don't know if you want to jump in, Adam, Mike. No, I think that's a good question for you, Corey. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I think with any of these funds, the the first couple questions to ask are going to be: first of all, what are the assets that are within it? Are they passively managed or are they actively managed? Because these different strategies are doing this in different ways. So uh, we mentioned the Wisdom Tree NTSX portfolio. That's very vanilla. That's going to be 90% equities, 10% cash, 60% notional exposure to treasury futures. Contrast that with something like PIMCO Stocks Plus, which is going to be bonds as the base and then overlaid with about 100% notional exposure to the S&P 500 through futures. So what's important in in trying to understand what's going on in in the construction is going to be uh, cost. It's going to be tax consideration. So, you know, you're getting wonderful 60-40 treatment on your treasury futures with NTSX, but in PIMCO Stocks Plus, you're getting 60-40 treatment on the S&P 500, which is a typically worse tax than if you were just buying and holding S&P 500 exposure. So understanding which asset is getting levered up, the implied financing costs of levering up that asset, whether it's actively or passively managed, and the tax implications, are, I think, are hugely, hugely important. Um, another product that's out there is the double-line Schiller Enhanced Cape uh, product mutual fund. I think I got it's all those right. words in different order, but yeah, yeah, I can, which is actively managed bonds with a total return swap on top. That's based on an actively managed equity index. So again, it's, it's the same sort of concept stocks plus bonds levered up, but now it's, it's not passive equity and passive treasuries. It's active bonds and active equity. And so you have to decide not just, do you want this total leverage exposure, but how are they actively managing the bonds? How are they managing the collateral? How are they actively managing this equity index? And how do they play together? And so you have to be really careful when you look at these different products as to how the pieces are actually fitting together and, and the tax considerations thereof. And, and you want to reach out to the managers because a lot, like, like Corey mentioned earlier, a lot of people aren't very public about the leverage they're using. They don't use the word leverage in these funds. They'll talk about, uh, you know, we have a 95% exposure to the S&P. And then we have, uh, with the last 5%, we do a swap of some sort to get extra exposure to blah, blah, blah. So you're not often getting a direct communication as to what type of leverage and how they're using the leverage. You have to, you have to call, you have to dig, and you have to get the right answer, right? Um, so uh, since this paper's come out, a lot of people that have been hiding 
are coming out of the closet with their leverage, right? And saying, oh, I want to be, be part of your list all of a sudden, right? Hopefully, we're making it cool again to talk about capital efficiency. Um, but yet, you need, do need to make the call, and you, you also need to diversify your manager risk. So we launched uh, an index based on the paper. And on our website, if you go to uh, investresolve.com, go to strategies, and then indices, or stacking return indices, you'll see a version of the Stack 6040 uh, portfolio and the managers that are chosen there. And a lot of them are overlapping managers, right? There's two managed futures funds. Why do you want to do that? Because managed futures are notoriously divergent. Like They're not all going to give you the exact same type of trend, speaking of the 200-day moving average. So you, wanted to, you have the opportunity here to diversify manager risk as well while getting those stack returns. Right, so that's that's I think a key thing. Diversify your line item risk, and then the other discussion and objection that we've had with, um, especially with dealing with advisors that want to implement something like this, is that ultimately when they go to their compliance and say, "Look, I have a model portfolio. Look at these ten line items. I, I want to do this," they're going to go search for those line items and see that they're all alternative funds, and that will be like, at first blush, it'll seem like it's a hundred percent high risk. Can't do it, right? So advisors are working with a compliance team to explain the concept. And uh, what we've suggested is not to say, listen, you should replace what you're doing and just do this because it's going to be a tough ask. You got to get compliance on board. What we're suggesting is create a brand new sleeve with with a bit of assets. Just convince one or two of, of your clients or yourself to do it and let the numbers speak for themselves over the next three years and slowly educate. Let people opt into this solution as time goes by um, because it is a compelling um, uh, implementation. It is what institutions are doing. The most sophisticated people and in institutions on the planet have been doing this for decades, and that's why they're crushing everybody in terms of returns. The Canadian Pension Plan, the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. This is, this is institutional quality concepts that eventually will show up in the numbers. So, yeah, you gotta, the truth is that Ultimately, you've you got to address the, uh, the fact that it's all alts, that there is leverage. You've got to get your compliance uh, behind it. And then you, I'm, I think you need to let people opt in rather than force it on them. Poor Amit keeps asking for the list of tickers. We, 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 keep, we can't be much we keep, more clear. We yeah. keep putting we the keep link posting in there. them. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe Ani, just, just for, for posterity, Drop that link to the stack I, I returns dro- I index page in again as well on the on the thing. But yes, it's it's in it's in there a couple of times. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a full list of a, of a there's a model portfolio there yeah. if you really are you know yeah. looking well, for a prescription. It's an index. Yeah, it's an index. <laughs> what I meant um, is an index. And it, you know what? It's interesting extending on this point. So so here's what you I'll, can I'll do in public it. markets and publicly traded markets. Right? These are all widely available funds. Um, the next step is when, when you ask that question, I, I always get when, when that person asks that question, be fun to funds or not fun to funds. I get excited because Adam, you've got some work in the can here. Maybe give everybody a little quick peek on what you're seeing in a fund of funds structure versus a group of manager structure where you can do some netting and in, in sort of uh, more sophisticated portfolios, what the what the output puts are, and and uh, sneak peek into some some research that you're working on, maybe. Oh yeah, okay, sure. So the the premise here was was um, motivated by a conversation we had on on this show with Chris Schindler a few months back, which I highly recommend that you go and listen to. The full thing is absolutely 
mind blowing. And there's, you know, a hundred different amazing takeaways that would be a creative for most investors. But um, one of the things he mentioned was that there is a huge um, benefit in terms of total net returns to allocating to a multi-strat manager rather than allocating to many individual managers that each run their own independent strategy. Um, and the, the benefits accrue from three different sources. The first source is that when you run a variety of strategies in a single fund, then a lot of the times the, um, the trades that you're putting on in order to, to execute on each of those strategies are orthogonal to one another, which means that often they will be netting, right? So you'll be, one strategy will be going long a market and another strategy will be going short the market. And if you're running them in the same account or the same fund, you don't buy and then sell, you just net the exposure. So your, your, your average trading is a lot smaller than it would be if you were running them in separate accounts or in separate funds, right? And so you're paying less commission and you've got less trade slippage. Um, the second is that you're paying performance fees, right? So a lot of the time, these are active strategies that have performance fees and the performance fees you're paying are on two different things. One is the skill of the manager and one is the noise of the strategy. Well, when you combine a, a, a bunch of strategies together, the noise, a lot of the noise cancel out. So the noise term in that equation is much lower and, it, and the, the proportion of the signal is much higher. So you end up paying a, a higher proportion of your performance fees on skill and a much lower proportion of the performance fees on noise. And so your aggregate total performance fees paid is a lot smaller when you mix all of these strategies in a single fund rather than when you have them across multiple different independent accounts or funds or strategies. And the third source is a little bit more nuanced, but um, consider a typical allocation to alternatives. You've got, let's just say you've got, you know, uh, 70% in a core portfolio, you're going to take 30% and allocate it, 30% of the portfolio of your, of your capital and allocate it to alternatives. If you, and let's say you, at each of those alternatives, each has a volatility of 10%. Well, when you allocate to a variety of these different alternatives, if they're uncorrelated, your total risk budget is substantially less than 10% because when you combine all of these funds together that are uncorrelated, you get diversification of the total portfolio volatility goes down and your your expected returns goes, goes down commensurately. When you combine them all in a single portfolio, then when if you don't, re-leverage them, then the returns go down. But the when you combine them, you can then rescale the total combined strategy back up to the original target risk, which means you're then getting a substantial boost to your target return or to your expected return. So the combination of those three different things in the case studies that we examined resulted in about a 50% boost to expected performance from allocating to a multi-strat fund or a multi-strat product rather than allocating to, you know, a series of individual products where each product is trading independently, paying fees independently, and you don't have the opportunity to rescale the to total portfolio risk to achieve that potential target return. So 
that's um that's coming out in the next few weeks beautiful well we took it from the beginning to the middle and left them on that star-spangled banner note right there at the end, <laughs> leaving them, you know, obviously with bated breath for the next uh, um, uh, papers that are that are coming out. And, Can I just uh, say I'm I'm actually really excited about that paper, Adam. I I think there this industry focuses far too much on the next source of alpha when stuff like that is a structural edge when you think about it correctly and is an edge that cannot be diminished. Right? You either yeah, you do know, it. Correctly or you do it incorrectly. And if you do it correctly, it's not something like crowding can get rid of. You are literally tilting all the odds in your favor. And I think that kind of stuff doesn't get enough play in this industry. You know, it's 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 really, it's so nuanced because you know, we talked about this a lot internally because all of our strategies are are, are massive multi-strats, right? And, and what that means is you are eliminating to the greatest extent possible the the luck component right that that noise component which is maybe your strategy specification just happens to get really lucky in a year right and the vast majority of investors misperceive that luck as skill and then your fund gets a massive amount of inflows and you know it can make a career right some really good luck that's 99% of the time, just noise makes careers, right? And we have shorted that opportunity in order to be able to maximize the efficiency of portfolios. And so what it means is we expect to sort of be in the second kind of the second quartile all the time and almost never in the first quartile because we just don't have that that luck, that that excess noise factor that gets you into the top quartile, Right. The reality is funds that spend some time in the top quartile are a lot more likely to spend time in the bottom quartile, right? And it's that moving from top quartile to bottom quartile that ends up leaving investors with very mediocre returns over time. What you want is a fund that spends most of its time in the second quartile, never spends time in the bottom quartile, and that compounding effect ends up paying off to a massive amount of excess wealth over time. So- Anyways, it's a really interesting business decision, investment decision for an allocator. You got line item risk. You've got, you know, single custodian risk, single operations risk. There's all kinds of things to consider. But I think this is an important. Um, I don't. Set did of you touch on the actual concerns. manager turnover? Right. So you've got these ten non-correlated managers. Um, you, you will absolutely have one that that provides a fifteen or twenty percent loss, and if you fire them at that point. That's the asset that you had and the performance fee is now gone. You have to hire a new manager at the new fresh performance fee. So manager turnover based on some arbitrary um, uh, drawdown metric virtually guarantees a turnover man- of managers that increases the overall performance fee paid. Yep. Um, and it, a lot it, of it, a lot of advisory firms have these arbitrary thresholds. If, a, if an alternative fund violates a 15% drawdown limit, that fund is automatically removed from the recommended list. Yeah. A new fund is there to replace it. And all that means is advisors are forced to sell that fund that's in a drawdown. Keep in mind, the investors in that fund have accrued an asset. That asset is the value of the difference between the high watermark on the fund and where the where the fund currently is in drawdown. They're giving that up. Now they're going to go buy a new fund. They're, that high watermark is reset at the purchase price. 
and you repeat rinse and repeat so there's a massive accrual of of negative um or giving up on positive uh uh, fee assets. That what about the tax time. asset you create though? This is probably, you know, I'm not even going to go there. We could go another you know, hour. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you make a fair point, right? You, you, you have a potentially a tax asset, but many of these assets are, let's face it, these are endowments and whatnot. So there isn't tax deferred right. products. Great point. But you're right. If you do have a tax asset, it, it's something that you need to consider, but a 20% free ride up to your, your, your high watermark and abandoning that just through randomness, right? If you have 10 managers with a one sharp and they're not correlated and you have this metric, some of them are just going to hit the part of the, the bell curve that knocks them out for nothing but just random noise. Oh, the vast majority of it's just noise. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's a complete foolishness. Right. And, and it's like Rick says, good, good, good to invest when it drops 15%. That's precisely right, right? If you've, you know, review the manager, if nothing's changed, it's a normal drawdown rebalance, add more. Uh, if it's broken, okay, sell. But that's a very different, you know, I think broken is often confused. One day we'll have an hour and a half conversation of what being broken means. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Precisely, which is it, it leads, it needs at least that, at least that. Yeah, for sure. Well, gentlemen. All right, gentlemen. Are you guys all joining me for the uh, private screening privilege. of Dune this Sunday? Yeah, I'm, I'm in. I mean, I I've got to run it by my boss. I'm, I'm, I just... I, I absolutely said to my boss that I might be missing at 10 o'clock on Sunday. I'll try and get you a ticket. Yeah. It's not, it's not this Sunday. Right? It's not yeah, it's this Sunday. Yeah, it's I didn't tell my the 22nd. boss. Dude. I didn't, I didn't tell him. That's why, that's why, why it's are a private screening. Are we still screening. on the air? Oh. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you guys Great so caller. much for listening. Please smash yeah. that like button. Please like and share. And um, we look forward to seeing you here next week. Corey, thanks a lot Thank for joining you. us yeah, thanks, again. Corey. Thanks again, bud. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right, gents. See ya. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.